On the latest Bill Kelly Show podcast, we go to Tokyo to talk about the sights and sounds of the 2020 Olympic Games and the mental challenges that athletes and coaches and trainers are being faced with. Canada will open the border to non-essential travel to the U.S. on August 9th, but America says that Canadians aren't allowed to cross the border until at least August 21st. What gives? And a new survey shows 40% of Canadians aren't ready to swap their sweatpants for suits when they come back to the office. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Uh, They're starting tomorrow. Opening ceremonies, uh, 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. We know there's a 13-hour time difference from our time zone to Tokyo. It's uh, just after 10 p.m. in the evening there. And that's where we find Dr. Carla Edwards. She is the Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University and a high-performance mental health advisor for Swimming Canada and Cycling Canada. Dr. Edwards, how are you? Hi, Rick. I'm great. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you. I was going to say good morning, but it's good evening in Tokyo. It certainly is, yes. And the, the time difference takes a little getting used to. My family is all in Hamilton, so it's, it's a bit confusing sometimes. <laughs> so <laughs> before we get to what's happening on, on, on the ground in Tokyo and the vibe there, tell us about getting there, the restrictions in place at the airport, all that kind of fun stuff, if you will. Fun is a term I use pretty loosely here. Uh, we we, st- <laughs> we staged in Vancouver, thankfully. So we, we from a weather point of view, we got acclimatized to the heat pretty quickly there. Um, and Air Canada took really good care of us uh, in advance of our flight and on the way over here. So the flight itself was not a problem. We were treated very, very well. Uh, upon landing, however, uh, we packed our patients, thankfully. I think we, we got ourselves mentally prepared for what we were going to face. But... Uh, I mean, what we faced, I, I think it was beyond what we could have imagined. It was about eight hours in the airport from the time we landed to the time we got on the bus to head to the village, which was about another hour from the airport. So it was a lot of sitting and standing and moving and sitting and standing and waiting and uh, really not knowing what was happening. Um, so a lot of uncertainty. And uh, again, it, everybody handled it like champions. Like these, the people that we're traveling with are just incredible human beings and they were very patient and and everybody kept their cool, I think because we knew what was on the other side of it. And that's what we really wanted to focus on. Uh, so once we got here, you know, it was behind us and it was a blur and it was something that was in our, our rearview mirror. And, and since we've been here, it's really just been focusing ahead on what's coming. I do want to focus on that, but just a quick question about the airport scenario and, and spending eight hours there. Was it because it was unorganized or so organized that you had to wait for certain things to happen? Great question. Uh, I mean, the Japanese people are very well known for their efficiency and their mm-hmm. organization. Uh, again, we, we there was not a lot of information coming our way when we were there. We were just kind of directed from area to area without really knowing what was happening. And, uh, you know, they, I think they were being very careful to move groups through very, you know, carefully to try to adhere to COVID protocols and try to keep it as as sanitized as possible. So very small groups moving forward, which I think led to the delays um, and multiple layers of checks. So in, in one particular area where we would be sitting, four or five individuals would come to us at different times asking us to review the exact same documentation. So again, hard to know what was behind that because we weren't really told why they were checking it or what they were exactly checking. There was just a lot of checking. Hmm. Uh, You mentioned uh, being stationed in BC beforehand and getting acclimatized to the heat. What is the weather like in Japan? Is it a a hot stretch that you're dealing with now? Extremely heavy heat, Uh, very humid, very hot, uh, averaging, I would think, 37 to 40 degrees every day. And so we're really trying to be aware of our hydration levels and, um, you know, not allow our athletes to get too overheated outside. And it, it's interesting, you know, I've spoken to some of the beach volleyball players and other outdoor athletes, and they're loving it. They love the heat. They prefer the heat. And they've, I think, gotten themselves prepared for that in their their weeks and months heading into here. Um, but, you know, I've, it's a beautiful area. The village is incredible. So, um, you know, we're, we're taking it in, but really being careful at the same time because of the heat. As a high-performance mental health advisor for Swimming Canada and Cycling Canada, the heat can drain on people, maybe, you know, play with your mind a little bit, especially in a high pressure situation. Is that something you plan to address or needs to be addressed? 
it doesn't really apply to the pool athletes. Uh, we're inside. It's it's climate controls. Right. It's really just the uh, controlling how much we're outside. From the cyclist point of view, the the track cyclists are in an indoor climate uh, controlled area as well. And I know the that Cycling Canada was very careful to ensure that the athletes were exposed to very similar levels of humidity in the velodrome when they were training and uh, heat acclimatization with the physiologist. So, so they're ready. I mean, I think, and I think BMXers and the mountain bikers um, have all been staging and in preparation in key areas of the globe to get them ready for this. So they, they know we've got an amazing teams of physiologists and sports scientists getting everybody ready. So I think they'll be okay. Is this your first trip to Tokyo? It's my second trip to Tokyo, first trip to the Olympics. Uh, I was here two years ago with the swimmers uh, kind of passing through Tokyo on our way to staging for Worlds in 2019. Cool. So what's the vibe in the city like? Well, we don't get to see a lot of the city, but I can tell you that we're, we're very well protected here in the village. The, uh, the waterways are lined with Coast Guard and kind of guard ships, and there's lots of security. So from the vibe from a security point of view is very, very good and comforting. Um, it's, there's a lot of excitement in the village. There's more and more people arriving every day and just to see, you know, the nations wearing their colors, wearing their uniforms. And, and we, we see other Canadians. And even though we, we may not know them personally, we, we're all on the same team. So it's very unifying. And, and it's, uh, it's just the, the electricity is raised, rising here on a daily basis heading into the games this weekend. We're chatting with Dr. Carla Edwards, Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. She's also a high-performance mental health advisor for Swimming Canada and Cycling Canada. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill this week. Um, opening ceremonies are tomorrow morning or tomorrow night to Tokyo time. Um, talk about the mentality of, from an athlete's perspective in you know, enjoying that moment, but then having to switch gears to focus on their event. Yeah, swimming happens pretty early in the games typically, so the, the swim team doesn't typically go to the opening ceremonies anyways. So for, for us, it would really be us watching it from the village and, and enjoying it that way, but getting ready. And and our athletes are really, you can feel the the focus really shifting um, as we as we shift from, you know, twice a day training to once tomorrow and then getting ready to compete on Saturday. So everybody's kind of moving into gear and really focusing. And then, I mean, there, there are a few select athletes that will be going to opening ceremonies, but in general, most of the teams are planning a place to watch it together and, and really just feel that energy come together and get us ready to move into competition. There are a lot of sports where, you know, the mental part of the game is, you know, 90% and the physical part is 10% or whatever the percentages is. But, you know, it's really heavily uh, relied on the mental state of the athlete. Can that be said for most sports and most Olympic sports? I believe so, yes. And, uh, you know, the athletes that we see really rise to the occasion and excel in this setting are the ones that have, have been exposed to the practice and the different skill sets that are required. And, uh, you know, the coaching staff and the IST members that, um, you know, facilitate that and really buy into it as well. It's and, and I think it applies also to the coaching staff and all of the athletes, entourage and support staff. We all have to be on our best game and be aware and be ready for anything. Uh, you have to be ready for no fans, which is a little bit different, obviously, from past Olympics and past world championships and all that kind of stuff. Does that uh, need some kind of uh, reference or, or, or encouragement or coaching from, from your standpoint? Well, I think Canada's ready for that because we've been a whole year and a half without that. And a lot of our qualifiers have occurred without fans. So our athletes are kind of used to that. I'm going to say there's not going to be any fans, but there will be spectators. Uh, the countries will be in the stands. We will be able to be there cheering on our teammates. We won't be able to go and watch other sports, but we will be in the stands watching our own athletes. So uh, they'll certainly hear us. There is a lot of pressure, especially come Olympic time, because it only happens every four years, in this case, every five years because of the pandemic. Talk a little bit about that mental preparation, knowing that this could be it for this particular athlete or this particular team. Yeah, it's it's that was something that really came to bear in the last year, you know, for a lot of athletes who had to decide whether or not they were going to extend their career by another year to, to, to get it in under the wire or hang it up. Um, and also it was very different for some of the athletes who were early in their careers and they had a very different perspective on what was to come and, and the cycle now is shortened to three years before Paris. So I think it really struck athletes differently in the last year. And, and I'm really happy for those who decided to extend it 
take the chance and extend their careers, hoping that these games would go ahead and they actually are. So, um, you know, they'll be able to finish their careers the way that they wanted to. And I think it'll be really, um, you know, a, a nice way to resolve and for them to move on to the next chapter of their careers. I, I think the extra year, you know, has been a gift for a lot of athletes and particularly for those who have uh, viewed retirement. It's given them an extra bit of time to wrap their heads around it. There was, a, you know, an extended period of uncertainty even leading up to this week with suggestions that, you know, the, the plug may be pulled because of rising case counts, uh, not only in the Olympic Village, but uh, certainly outside of it in, in Tokyo, which is still under a state of emergency. Um, the mental shift of not knowing to then, OK, we're going. Um, I'm not sure if that's, you know, a factor at all, but uh, or anybody is anybody talking about that? Yeah, you know, really people in here are not talking about COVID. Nobody's really talking about the cases and we're really shielded from that. I mean, we could find the information if we really wanted to, um, but nobody's talking about it here. People are following the protocols. We had the playbooks in, in place. Uh, and for months, I mean, we've had to approach this as we were going no matter what. Uh, the uncertainty was there floating around, but it was really not in the foremost of our minds because it couldn't be. In order to prepare for something like this, we had to be ready to go 100%. And now that we're here, we're going and everybody is training and competing and stepping up. And there's no doubt in our minds that this is going to happen. We're on the eve of the opening ceremony. What are you most looking forward to, not only with the opening ceremony, but with the games itself? Well, some of the games have started. We've had, uh, you know, a, a soccer game and a couple of, of softball games already. So some of the athletes have opened it up for us. But I think just really giving the athletes an opportunity to just do their thing, you know, show us what they have. We know what they have and just giving them an opportunity to, to get out in their, um, in their homes, essentially, this is their, you know, their, uh, where they shine and just giving them an opportunity to do that. They've been waiting for a long time to do this for a lot of athletes. They haven't competed in over a year and a half or two years, even now let's let them loose. Let's see what they have and give them an opportunity to shine. It's going to be a lot of fun. Enjoy the opening ceremonies tomorrow, Dr. Edwards. And thank you very much for the time today. Thank you so much, Rick. Dr. Carla Edwards is the Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University and also a high-performance mental health advisor for Swimming Canada and Cycling Canada. No doubt she has earned her paycheck this year and going into these Olympics because the mental strain, the what-ifs, the, uh, you know, the focus needed when, you know, those cyclists and when those swimmers are on their bikes or in the pools, uh, especially during a pandemic with the Olympics. You know, this could this could be it for a lot of these athletes, either one last game or a first Olympic experience uh, or just trying to make a name for themselves in the middle of their career. This is uh, obviously an exciting time for all of them. And of course, we are all behind Team Canada. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Put yourself into the shoes of the athletes who are now in Tokyo. They're in the Olympic Village, whether it's from Team Canada or the USA or any other nation that's involved. There is obviously a physical aspect to why they are there. If they weren't, you know, faster and stronger, um, jumped higher, uh, there's an addition to that I'll get to later on in the show. If they're not all of that, they're probably not there in the first place. But, you know, a big part of being a high-performance Olympic athlete is the mental part of their game, so to speak. Here to share some thoughts on that is Philip Sullivan, Department of Kinesiology Chair and Professor at Brock University. Mr. Sullivan, how are you? Hello, Philip. Hello, Rick. Hey, there you Hi, are. Rick. <laughs> how are you? How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thanks. Excellent. Well, as I mentioned, the the mental part of being a high-performance athlete is a key part of being at the top of their game. Uh, talk about how this Olympics could be and maybe will be the toughest one for any athlete ever due to what we're facing right now. Well, I think, I mean, when you look at it, it's, it's going to be unique. I mean, you're going to have athletes who may have gone to the Olympics multiple times before, but they've never, ever gone under these circumstances. You know, the, the possibility of COVID testing and what that might lead to, the fact that there's no spectators, which is, you know, just, just odd for their for their performance and their lifestyle. So it's it's going to be really unique. And because of that, it's probably going to be tougher than most of their performances before. Most athletes who go to the Olympics, I mean, they're they're extremely mentally tough, and and they are they have trained all of their life to deal with different stressors, to be in charge of the situation, to peak under pressure, to to remain 
really focused, but they're going to be put in an environment, an Olympic environment that they've never seen before. And regarding the pandemic, even though they're you know in a, a uh, an athlete's village kind of bubble, there are some events that are outside of, of Tokyo. But you know that kind of what if feeling, you know, what if I test positive, or what if a teammate tests positive, or uh, what if a competitor tests positive? You know what happens there? That uh, you know can can put a a drain and a strain on the mentality of of that athlete. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you just got to look back. I'm, I'm not a golf fan, but there was a golfer earlier this summer, John. John Rahm, Rahm yeah. Yeah, who in the middle of a tournament tested by, and he was leading, and he was looking at a $1.7 million uh, payday and tested positive in the middle of the tournament, and his, his tournament was over. So, and, and you've seen a couple of instances already where athletes have tested positive and gone to the Olympics. But, uh, I mean, if, if you're a, most most Olympic events aren't just one discrete event, right? The, the women's soccer started yesterday. They're going to have multiple games. If you're a swimmer, if you're a wrestler, if you're in track and field, you're going to have multiple events. What happens if you win your heat and then you test positive before the finals? And I'm sure it's something that's that has been on everyone's mind. I mean, it's something that they've trained hard to keep focus away from. But it's it's something that previous Olympics, previous Olympians wouldn't have to have to even deal with. And that's something that is always kind of in the back of your mind. I know that, you know, a particular person can do their best in in focusing on what is in front of them, but it's always kind of a knocking on the door in the backyard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's it's an unexpected one. Um, It's another unexpected one. And unexpected stressors are particularly tough on athletes. Unexpected stressors, time change, diet change, living in the Olympic Village, all of that they, they can know and they can plan for going ahead. The unexpected ones, you know, a freak injury or a bad call or now COVID, they tend to be harder for athletes to mentally prepare for. And then, uh, not that they can take a bigger toll, but they're, they're, they're a different kind of stressor and they tend to be a little harder. You mentioned uh, sleep patterns. Uh, you know, there's been Olympics held in Japan before. Nagano 98 comes to mind, uh, certainly in China, Beijing, and they're going to get another games uh, next winter. But for those who are, um, not on a international World Cup circuit, and now they're suddenly in Tokyo for the first time, uh, adjusting to that time difference, and you mentioned the food as well, th- th- that is a big adjustment. It, it's a really big adjustment. The best, the best quote, the best example I have for it that I use a lot in class is, is Ian Miller, who was Canadian in question, and he went to seven or eight Olympics. Mm-hmm. And, and he's in a question, so he also had to be concerned about the adjustment of his horse. And he would talk about being in the optimal state of stress, which I like as a quote for students because you tend to think of stress as a bad thing, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you need to be at the right point of it. And, you know, if he was going to Tokyo or if he was going to Norway or, or Australia, he would talk about, you know, you need to get there, you need to adjust yourself, you need to be in the village, you need to be uh, in the right time cycle because when time comes for performance, you need to be at that optimal state of managing those stressors. So what is the right point of stress, and is that a process? Do you got to go through certain steps to get there? Uh, uh, yes, and it's an, it's an individual thing. I mean, some people thrive under intense pressure, and some people thrive under low pressure and moderate pressure. So it's an individual thing, but these athletes should all be aware of, of what their zone, what their optimal state is, and make sure they're taking the right steps to get to it. I mean, it's a deliberate process, and it's not going to take a matter of hours. It's going to take days and maybe a little bit more. What about controlling what you can control? We hear that from a lot of professional athletes and, and amateur athletes who are going to the Olympics as well. How important is that? When, when I, I think it's really important. When you look at the research and you look at athletes talking about thriving under pressure, that, that controlling what they can control and, and controlling the environment, it's, it's a big part of their mindset. So they, they know... Um, they know the things that they can't control. They can control their effort. They can control, you know, how hard they're trying. They can't control their skill and their ability level. Um, you know, they, they know what they can't control. They can't control the weather. They can't control bad calls. And, and a good, strong, mentally tough athlete. And there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many great examples of them. But they know um, not to waste their energy and not to get stressed out over things they can't control. But I mean. It, it, it still happens all the time. You watch the NBA Finals and there's a bad call and people will have an emotional reaction and maybe lead to another bad call or, or you know, unfocused play for 30 seconds. So it's easy to say and athletes recognize it and some of the best athletes of all time are fantastic at it. But it is easier said than done. No doubt about it. Philip Sullivan is our guest, Department of Kinesiology Chair and Professor at Brock University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill. 
Um, no crowds at the Olympics this year. Obviously, Tokyo is in a state of emergency. They've banned not only international travelers from attending the Games, but local fans can't go to any of the events in Tokyo. There are some events, as I mentioned, outside of the city that there will be some spectators. Um, there will be some athletes and coaches in these events in Tokyo, so there will be some people there, but it's not going to be the same, is it? No, I, I wonder about that, too. Now, obviously, we've seen examples of that through major sports around the world and here in North America, the NHL starting with no fans and, and Major League Baseball doing the same kind of thing. Um, but, I mean, again, the Olympics are different. The Olympics are this once in a, in a four-year opportunity. Uh, and, and fans are a big part of this of the experience. So I, I, it definitely will be a different experience for the athletes. You, you you might think oh it's going to be easier right you're gonna you're gonna get up there on the blocks to swim and there's going to be nobody uh, no distractions but it is part of what these athletes are used to I mean if you're if you're an Olympic athlete this is a path you've been on for maybe decades and every time you go to swim or every time you you go to to the shop or whatever it might be there's typically some kind of crowd there and if you get to bigger events there's a big crowd there and now there's not so. Um, it, it's it's interesting to me. I wonder what difference it will make. Uh, you could argue that maybe it's be easier on athletes, but it is definitely going to be different. And uh, different tends to lead to uh, unexpected things happening. My guess is the individual athletes, whether it's gymnastics or swimming or diving, you know, you're there alone and you might rely a little bit on that momentum from the crowd. Is that going to be different from a team perspective compared to an individual perspective, do you think? Um, well, I mean, are, are you going with team sports? Are you talking about more of the big venue sports like soccer would have a large, tend to have a larger crowd? Than, yeah, than in terms events? of, like, if you're on a soccer team, you can, you know, look beside you, you have a teammate to, to, to rally you or whatever the case is. If you're by yourself and there's no crowd, I mean, you're by yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of the kind of the performance bubble, those athletes, you know, like, like a wrestler is on his or her own with the coach in their corner and they have that. Um, so in, I think in terms of that performance, I think they'll get what they're used to. If you're used to having 15 people around you, you have that. If you're used to having right. one person around you, you have that if you're a fencer or a wrestler. But you do know when you go to international sports, when you go to the Olympics, all, there tends to be, you know, the atmosphere is quite different. Uh, now, it's an equal change for everyone. But again, I mean, when, when you talk to athletes and coaches who have gone to the Olympics, it's, it's more stressful. It's more different. Like, weirder things happen because of the scope of the event. And this is just, this is unseen before. So it wouldn't surprise me if we see a lot of very different outcomes, unexpected outcomes, because of the the different environment and different, the psychology being different this year from other events. What we have seen in past Olympics is some athletes testing positive for banned substances, and that might, you know, upend the medal count or change what's happened on the podium. Uh, this year we could have a COVID-positive test that might derail some things. Um, how do you think athletes are going to respond to that, whether it's themselves or a teammate or somebody else in the competition? Yeah, I, I think they've been trying, training very hard to make that one of those things, like you mentioned, that they can't control, kind of put that in that box, put that out of, out of their head. Um, but it's it's just going to be so unexpected. It wouldn't surprise me, like you said, that we do see events like this, favorites or people halfway through the event get taken, removed from competition. Uh, and it is going to be... Uh, you know, it's going to be, again, something new for these athletes to deal with. Uh, hopefully, and what they're all trying to do is say, okay, if that happens, that happened. I can't control it. It's like a, a bad call or, or a little bit of bad weather, and I'll move on with what I can control. And they train very deliberately and very hard to be able to do that. But it, it's harder said than done, and this is the biggest scale in the world, and this is you know, a, a different environment than ever before. So I, I think you're going to see some interesting reactions to things like that. Do you think COVID's going to be a big part of this Olympic Games? Um, I would think it might not be, I, I think in the, in the background of the mindset, it'll always be on people's shoulders. So yeah. it will be a big thing. I think there will be a couple of things that will definitely get some, uh, uh I mean, as soon as one positive test pops up, it's going to be worldwide news, but I, I mean, hopefully they've had so long to prepare and the world has come such a long way that in the big picture, it's probably not that big a story. Most of the events will go by normally and people will get their chance to perform and do well. Well, it's going to be an exciting time. Opening ceremonies are tomorrow morning. Uh, Philip Sullivan, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Rick. Philip Sullivan is a Department of Kinesiology Chair, also a professor at Brock University, telling us about the psychology behind a lot of these high-performance athletes and their mental state of mind. Because, number one, you have to have the physical attributes to get to where they are. 
You know, you have to be bigger, faster, stronger in some cases, depending on the sport. But that mental frame of mind, and I know we talk a lot about it in, like, say, golf. Because golf is really, I mean, there's a physical part to it. Obviously, you're swinging a club. So many things can go wrong with your swing. But it's that mental part of the game. And not only having a good mental frame of mind, but when things don't go your way. You know, you miss a short putt. Now, now your mind is playing not necessarily tricks on you, but it's you're second guessing. And you're thinking about what you just did as opposed to focusing on what you are now supposed to do. From an Olympic athlete's perspective, you know, compared to golf, golf you're playing every weekend, every other weekend, maybe twice a month on the PGA Tour if you're laying out your schedule. Some could play, you know, 10 or 15 events. Others will play more than 20. But from an Olympic perspective, you have one event or a series of games or events within your um, discipline. And this is it. And it only comes once every four years. The mental strain on these athletes is absolutely incredible. But I'll say this. They are mentally strong, without a doubt. I mean, how many times have we seen an athlete win an event or or maybe even get a career best finish? You know, they finished fourth. They're shy of the podium, but they've never been higher in the standings of whatever event they're involved in. And they break down and they're they're crying or they're overjoyed because... It's all that hard work in the gym, preparing, testing, competing, qualifying, and finally putting it all together on that particular day. That's a lot of that's a lot of mental pressure, pressure on the body, but a lot of mental pressure that they have to prepare for. And if they don't execute, or if they do, you know, their mind is uh, they're, they're going to be left with that memory and with that you know circumstance for the rest of their lives until maybe they compete again in another four years. Or five, if COVID's still around. Knock on wood, it's gone. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada and the U.S. obviously not on the same page when it comes to reopening the border to non-essential travel. We get the details from Global's Reggie Chikini. For 16 months, travel between Canada and the U.S. has been cut back to essential trips only, with restrictions renewed every 30 days. And while Ottawa has opted to clear a path to allow for vaccinated Americans into the country... It's not a reciprocal move. Earlier this week, the White House said any decisions linked to cross-border travel were being made solely by Canadian officials. And on Wednesday, the U.S. extended its ban on non-essential travel at land borders through August 21st. Officials with the Department of Homeland Security claimed the risk to border staff remains high, but it comes amid a new surge in COVID-19 cases across the United States, now posting on average 26,000 per day, more than 1,000 an hour. The U.S. is also lagging when it comes to vaccinations. With the CDC now noting the community spread in the U.S. remains substantial, the threat to public safety has left the DHS to err on the side of caution. A series of working groups is engaged in discussions about a return to international travel to the U.S., but there's been no public discussion about what criteria that might include. Last month, the U.S. State Department lowered the travel advisory for Americans into Canada to reconsider. But with Ottawa putting a series of entry requirements on the table for allowing Americans to cross the border, it's unclear why the U.S. is holding back on doing the same and whether a recent rise in cases in Mexico could be driving a decision for all land crossings. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Perrin Beattie is our guest. He is the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and he joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Good morning, Perrin. Good morning. Glad to be with you. So what gives here? We're, we're welcoming fully vaccinated Americans in, but it's not being reciprocated. What do you think? It's a mystery. Uh, it makes no sense. It's hard to believe that it was just five months ago that the president, the prime minister, issued a statement that was called a roadmap for renewed U.S.-Canada partnership. And in that, they said this, quote, both leaders agreed to take a coordinated approach based on science and public health criteria when considering measures to ease Canada-U.S. border restrictions in the future. This is not coordinated. It's not based on science. It doesn't reflect the public health data. It makes no sense. In saying that, did you see this coming? Did you get a sense that this might happen? Um, there, there was always the possibility. There were hints, I suppose, when Minister Blair indicated that he had uh, signaled to the Americans what they were, what the Canadians were going to do, uh, but he was a bit coy about what the response was at that time. 
But it, it's it's crazy stuff. So it flies in the face of the roadmap. It appears the Americans have misplaced the roadmap. <laughs> do, you, do you also get the sense that maybe the U.S. wants to see what happens in Canada with cases when fully vaccinated Americans cross the border to see how it all works? I don't think that's it. Uh, I think it's it's essentially political based on anything I've heard. I've seen a couple of, of, of different uh, articles dealing, speculating on the reason. The one in Politico that suggested that the White House COVID czar was opposed to any reopening of the border, period, with anybody. The other is uh, that essentially for political reasons, the Biden administration didn't want to open the northern border unless it could open the southern border at the same time. And uh, that would be substituting politics, obviously, for, for medical science and for public health. And, you know, this is a big issue, especially when one country is doing so and the other isn't, especially two of the best friends on the planet. Exactly. And, and you know, the excuse that was used was that this was for public health reasons, that uh, there was a, a risk involved in opening the border and allowing Canadians in. Well, Canada's vaccination rate is running well above that in the United States, both for first and second vaccinations now. And in fact, the infection rate in Canada is way below that in the United States. Now, Canada's population is about 70% larger than that of Florida. Florida has an average rate, an average daily rate in terms of infections. That is 16 and a half times that of all of Canada. We're chatting with Perrin Beatty. He's the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce here on The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill today. Is a part of this perhaps the suggestion that the U.S. does not recognize the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine and those who have mixed and matched, there's a suggestion that they may not be allowed to cross the border because of that unrecognized vaccine, if you will? We were all concerned about that uh, and wanted to know how the Americans would handle the issue of the mixing of, of vaccines. But that's not the clearly not the reason. Uh, the government could have opened the border to people who were fully vaccinated with one type of vaccine. We might not have agreed with that, but uh, there would have been some logic to it. Today, the way that things stand is if you lived in Windsor, you could not drive across the bridge if you were fully vaccinated. You couldn't drive across the bridge to uh, to Detroit unless it was for something that was uh, that was an essential reason. However, you could drive to Toronto, get on a plane, and fly to Detroit, <laughs> whether you whether you were vaccinated or not. You could be completely unvaccinated, and so, would be allowed in as long as you'd taken a COVID test beforehand and were asymptomatic. Yeah, so there goes the public health, uh, you know, reasoning out the window. Really, it, it it's irrational. It, it it just makes no sense whatsoever. Throughout all of this, look at look at last winter. Throughout all of this, Canadians were flying to Florida and wintering there uh, without having had shots. Mm-hmm. Um, it's wide open. It's wide open today. The issue is that somehow driving in your car makes you more dangerous than, than flying in a plane. Um, the mayor of Sarnia, Mike Bradley, uh, came out and said that he thinks that the U.S. border closure will extend beyond August 21st. Do you agree? Is that a possibility? It's a possibility. I hope he's wrong, though, because it, it again, is so irrational. It penalizes families who have been separated for so long. The most important, the most significant economic impact is actually going to be on the U.S. side of the border where people won't be vacationing or won't be taking day trips or won't be shopping across the border. And that means uh, tens of millions of dollars lost in, in those border states, which is why border state governors and people like Chuck Schumer from New York have very strongly disagreed with the position taken by the administration. Yeah, which makes, you know, which makes it a little or a lot surprising because there has been a lot of talk leading up to the announcements the other day that, hey, when, when Canada opens, the U.S. Will, will open as well and we'll all do business with each other once again. And those border states who are, you know, at this time of the year, uh, you know, welcoming a lot of Canadians over the border for shopping and leisure and travel and tourism and all that stuff, they're, they're not going to get any of that or a lot of that. Exactly. We closed the border together. We chose the same date to make a decision in 21st of the month, to make a decision on whether or not to, to reopen. Uh, the roadmap for, uh, for partnership that the, that the president and the prime minister put out said that they were going to coordinate their activities, and instead what has happened here 
is the U.S. administration simply decided to, to go its own way. What have you made of the Prime Minister's response? He's basically said that, listen, every country makes its own rules and, and we've pushed ahead. Uh, was that strong enough? No. Um, what he said was, uh, we can't dictate to the United States what they do. Nobody's proposing that we either can or should attempt to dictate anything to the United States. The responsibility of our government is to represent the interests of Canadians. And that means that we should be in Washington reaching out to the administration and saying, what you've done makes no sense. We would ask you to change it. Do you expect anything to change over the next couple of weeks? No, I don't over the next couple of weeks because uh, the the U.S. administration has made this decision and uh, somebody wants to you know, look good in retreat. Um, my guess is that they will see this through at least for for another month at considerable cost to to those border states in particular and to families who are prevented from having the chance to get together. From our perspective, how huge was reopening the border at this time? I mean, waiting a little bit longer, pushing, you know, further into September even. Uh, there's a lot of money that is going to be left off the table if, uh, you know, many Americans weren't coming here. But now that August 9th has been set in stone um, for Canadian businesses, that that's huge, isn't it? It is. Um, we Unfortunately, we've missed most of the summer tourist season. And a day in July or August is worth a week in November in terms of in terms of tourism. But what it does mean is that, that we can begin to make plans now to welcome visitors from other countries. First of all, from the United States, then from other countries, if they're fully vaccinated. It means that conferences can go ahead, that we can have business meetings we, we couldn't have had before, and that, that tourism can be restarted. And, and so our government's decision was the right one, and we're very pleased that it, that it did that. The mystery to us is, is why the U.S. administration did what it did. Yeah, it is uh, mind-boggling. Perrin Beattie, thanks for the time today. Glad to be with you. Perrin Beattie is the president and chief executive officer of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, joining us about, uh, well, this this border conundrum, because Canada's opening its border to non-essential, fully vaccinated American travelers as of August the 9th. Uh, the U.S. of A. has said, ah, we're going to hold off a little bit longer. We're not going to do so until at least August the 21st. And some are suggesting, as I mentioned, the mayor of Sarnia, thinking it's probably going to even be longer than that. Now, whether it's the higher infections in Mexico or the infection rates that the U.S. is looking at in Mexico, saying, no, nah, we don't want to open the northern border and not the southern border. I mean, to me, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You know, the vaccination rate in Canada and Mexico are two completely different numbers. And we're doing much better than the other side. I'll tell you that. So it just makes this a really confusing situation. The one part of it that, you know, when you look at it and you analyze it and you think about it a little bit more, is the mixing and matching of vaccines. In the United States... They're not using the AstraZeneca vaccine so much so they've given millions of doses to other countries, including Canada. Here in Canada, we all know that NASI and Health Canada said, yeah, it's OK to mix and match your vaccine. Those guidelines allowed you, if you got AstraZeneca, to get a Moderna or a Pfizer shot. And so the U.S. FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has said, well, we, we don't quite... Um, support that stance. It should only be done, mixing and matching doses should only be done in exceptional situations. I would argue that a pandemic is an exceptional situation, is it not? But it has led many to think that this might be the flag in the soil of the U.S. in saying, yeah, we're going to let fully vaccinated Canadians cross our border for non-essential traffic come whatever the date they decide, but if you have AstraZeneca, we're going to have to iron that out. That's the sense I get. Minister Dominic LeBlanc just yesterday saying that over time he thinks that there's going to be an evolution and an adjustment, which, I mean, that screams to me that that is a part of what is going on here. Should also point out that there are some European countries that also do not recognize AstraZeneca as you know, put an official stamp on an official COVID-19 vaccine. 
There are European countries like Germany and Italy and Spain, France, Sweden, that have authorized people to follow one dose of AstraZeneca with a different vaccine. So it would appear that those countries will allow fully vaccinated, quote-unquote, Canadians, same dose or mixed dose, into their country. August 21st, if you're you're planning to visit the U.S. for a cross-border shopping trip or just, you know, just to get away, do something different, do something, (laughs) Uh, we may be... We may be waiting until after August the 21st. But Perrin made a good point, too. You can't drive across the border, but you can get on a plane and fly across the border, which to me does not make any sense in the world. It's not like you park uh, a potential COVID um, uh, infection at the airport. Say, hey, I'm jumping on a plane. Uh, You know, let's part ways here. And when I come back, I'll I'll get the virus again. Uh, It just doesn't happen. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. How many Zoom calls have we been in or MS Teams calls where we're turning on our video? We have maybe a golf shirt or a buttoned-up shirt or a blouse that we're wearing. Um, Down below, though, you know, maybe some shorts or pajama bottoms. (laughs) A new survey shows that 40% of Canadians aren't quite ready just yet to swap their sweatpants for suits when they return to the office. Wayne Berger is the CEO of the Americas for International Workplace Group, and he joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Wayne, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm not I too... am wearing pants this morning. Okay, that's good to hear. I was going to ask. That was my first question out of the gate. <laughs> um, but 40% of Canadians, according to this survey, um, are thinking, or at least it's in the back of their mind, that, hey, when I get back to the office, can I just wear my sweatpants? Yeah, you're right. It's pretty remarkable when we look at the survey results. Uh, as you mentioned, 40% of employee Canadians believe, frankly, the days of the suit, the days of formal business attire are over. And post-pandemic, 53% of survey respondents look forward to dressing up in what is you know, being coined as, or coined, sorry, as smart casual attire, really moving away from the formal business attire. So that's more than half. I mean, if you think about employee, employee Canadians uh, across the country, that number is roughly about 8 million Canadians that look forward to shifting what they wear to work every day. So what is smart casual attire? Uh, great, really great question. So smart casual attire is almost this fusion of attire. It's combining the comfortable clothing, the clothing choices that Canadians have very much enjoyed wearing here during the pandemic, but but adding in or fusing together um, some smarter attire that they could wear that would still be deemed acceptable in the office. So comfortable fabrics, comfortable clothes, but kind of taking a step away from the suits, something that would that would still be representative as, as people head back to an office. The uh, survey shows that two in five respondents, so roughly 40%, have been going Zoom casual. They're dressing up on the top half, but the bottom half could be, well, something that you probably wouldn't normally wear to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, when I saw the survey results, I actually, I actually think that that 40% could possibly be higher. Uh, I think many people throughout the pandemic, what we did see was at the beginning of the pandemic, People were more formal on Zoom and team calls. And then as time went on, they became more informal throughout the the first year of the pandemic. And now we're seeing this blending approach where depending on what's required or who they're meeting with during that team or Zoom's call, they're dressing up formally up top, but they're keeping it informal uh, uh, below uh, below the screen. And if it's totally informal, say, you know, uh, a T-shirt without, you know, a, a crazy logo on it, it only takes one person in a meeting or maybe a couple, and then that puts it in your mindset to say, hey, that's acceptable. You're exactly right. You know, when you start taking a look, people start to see trends that take place, and, and as things become more informal, that can become facilitated through an organization. I think that's but what we're seeing is this real smart, casual type of approach becoming more and more the norm. And what's interesting, Rick, is this type of trend, although it's become isolated and highlighted during the pandemic, it was actually on trend prior to the pandemic, similar to flexible working. Uh, people were starting to become more casual in what they wear. 
And they became more purpose-driven in what they were, depending on what was required of them throughout the day. They dressed for that requirement. And everything's almost essentially been accelerated and highlighted now, though, over the last 17 months. But, but these trends around, around how people were dressing were really starting to move into place over the, over the last few years prior to the pandemic as well. And why is that? Was it because it was more acceptable or was, you know, an employer looking at how someone was dressed didn't really impact how they worked? And, and maybe it did in a positive way. Now, it's a, so it's a great question. So one, what we saw was a people having the opportunity to be able to dress to their level of comfort provided them with the opportunity to become more productive, which, which was interesting. It created this, this opportunity where employees became more productive and more engaged because they had more choice. Uh, and what we've also seen is this dramatic increase in what's called knowledge-based workers. And knowledge-based workers are individuals who are working on their laptop or their phones or a digital device for a certain percentage of time each day. Well, knowledge-based workers can accomplish their work regardless of where they're actually physically located and also what they wear. So if they're comfortable, if, they're, uh, if they have the tools they need and, and they feel comfortable both in their environment and what they're wearing, creates for a, a productive business environment. So we've seen this this casualization of workwear start to take place very but very much dependent though on what people do each day. We're chatting with Wayne Berger. He's the CEO of the Americas for International Workplace Group. And our topic today is a new survey by IWG that shows 40% of Canadians aren't ready to swap out their sweatpants for suits when they return to the office. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL, 900 CHML, Rick in for Bill. And to that effect, you know, even my workplace here, we're talking about flexible hybrid working models uh, over the next several weeks and months. And, and you know, m- millions of companies around the world are looking at that kind of hybrid model. Is that adding a little more fuel to the casualness of the business attire when people do return to the physical office space? Uh, absolutely. The future is here and the future is flexibility. 77% of companies are instituting a flexible working strategy for their employees starting this summer through to September and October of 2021. And only 13% of Canadians actually want to go back to a traditional corporate headquarters five days a week, traveling more than 30 minutes each way. So when you start looking at the demands of employees and then also what's taking place with employers granting their people more flexibility because what's been proven over the last 17 months is Frankly, people can be productive working from different environments outside of a traditional corporate headquarters. Companies that fail to make this type of adjustment are going to be in a deep state of challenge around retaining and attracting great talent. So the the future is flexibility. In in saying that, are there certain uh, segments of business or industry uh, or commerce that simply won't adjust to this kind of casual thinking? I'm so glad you asked that question, because um, what we saw prior to the pandemic was these types of arrangements, both in dress and also workplace, or let's call it ubiquity in terms of where people work, became really very much prevalent amongst the tech sector, for example. But what's interesting is we're starting to see the government make a fairly significant shift around both dress code as well as where people can work each day. and. Uh, many of the banks are starting to come out as well. The largest financial institutions in Canada are coming out discussing and sharing um, their um, their return to work strategy and flexibility is becoming a, a real focal point around around their working strategy moving forward. So what we're seeing is actually the opposite. They're, we're not seeing a, a dedicated sector that's bringing everybody back to the office. It's more different types of roles in organizations where Perhaps being in an office is going to be more of a requirement if they have to be dedicated in one location. But what we are seeing, the greater trend is it's very much in a sector. It's, it's across multiple sectors and industries that, uh, that individuals and organizations that weren't supporting flexible working before are now supporting flexible working moving forward. Government, financial institutions, and some of the more conservative types of industries 
are now moving towards flags. I know this IWG survey was based on, you know, how Canadians are feeling and dressing and thinking about, uh, you know, the hybrid model and how they're going to adapt their dress code to that. But we're a very connected world. There's global enterprise and global economies to uh, look at as well. Are other countries kind of thinking along the same wavelength as what Canadians have told you? Yes, we're seeing very, very similar, very, very similar mindset and also actions in the United States throughout Latin America, in Western Europe, and also in Asia and Australia. So this is very much becoming a global phenomenon. What, what's happening today, which is very interesting, is companies now have opened their collective eyes and mindset around talent. So, very, so today, companies are looking to access a global talent pool. So, for example, if you're a great employee who lives, for example, in Regina, Saskatchewan, well, you, you have the ability to be able to work for an organization, for example, that may be based in Palo Alto, California. That may not have taken place prior to the pandemic because companies wanted their people close together. But what's interesting now is companies are recognizing that, hey, we can bring great people on board, we can onboard them effectively, and we can let them live from wherever they need to live they'll be a great member of our team. So now companies see this global access for, for talent, um, which gives employees great choice in choosing where they want to live and work every day, but also companies can raise their game in terms of their talent pool. So we're seeing this less centric approach to location and more just frankly, accessibility to a global talent pool. Last question for you. Are clothing companies jumping on this in terms of producing this smart casual attire uh, or even marketing that, hey, this is the the, the new thing you got to wear at the office or in your virtual office? Designers are. So we're seeing a significant number of designers start to look at what work and dress code look like and they're they're starting to employ those types of themes that people have found valuable during these last 17 months working from home and and how they can incorporate it into this new work style Um, because it's it's really about this kind of blending approach as people transition back in a i'm calling a soft landing manner so we're seeing a significant number of designers which i'm sure at that point will then transition to the uh to the, the clothing manufacturers Hey, Wayne, great stuff today. Thanks for the chat. Thanks, Rick. All the best. Talk soon. Wayne Berger is the CEO of the Americas for International Workplace Group. We've been talking about a new new survey from IWG that shows that 40% of Canadians are not quite ready to swap their sweats for suits when they return to that physical office space. And 71% of Canadians reported wearing comfortable clothing, such as athletic or leisure wear, during the workday. And when asked when they do return to the office, well, what's been on their minds is at least 53% of them plan to dress in smart, casual attire, a.k.a. something that is respectful but comfortable as well. So maybe not necessarily that suit and tie or that sharp kind of business outfit that a woman will walk into the office with. Might not even be high heels. Could be some, uh, you know, fancy sneakers. We shall see. Once offices and workplaces reopen to a greater degree and welcome everyone back. And that's really not going to be the case either, because with these hybrid models, it's going to be a lot of people who will be able to work from where they are right now, either at home or some kind of virtual kind of space. It'll be interesting to see how people do modify their dress attire when we're all back together again. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.